Welcome to the Pacific Point Church Podcast, where we're learning to love and live like Jesus. During this half hour, we're praying that God will direct, encourage, and speak to you. If you would like to partner with Pacific Point Church and our church plants, you can download the Pacific Point Church app at the App Store or visit us at pacificpointchurch.com slash give. At that same site, you can also watch and listen to previous sermons, read follow-up blog posts and extended notes, and even connect with Pacific Point Church on social media. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. You're welcome. All right, so hello everybody. How's everybody doing? Good? It's good to have you this morning. Uh, Chris and I, we're in, we left last Sunday right after church and went to Austin, Texas for four days, three or four days, and uh, we had our, our, our 26th anniversary. I put up with her for 26 years. I know that's hard for you guys to fathom that I'd have to put up with her for that long, but, um, you know, that's the kind of guy I am. Give, give, give. Um, no, it's been, I've been blessed with an amazing, amazing wife, so thank you for 26 wonderful years, Chris. Uh, we are, um, before we get started, I, I really think we need to tackle and talk about something. Jesus is in culture. I think there are cultural issues that we need to address as Christians, and uh, we, had a, we had one this week that was pretty, uh, pretty large, and, but I, I want to talk because there's so much going on, and briefly, of, of, with this, and Christians and non-Christians, the vision that is going on. And it's around the, the response to the Supreme Court and uh, reversing Roe v. Wade. How do we respond as Christians? L- let me tell you how we don't respond as Christians. Walking around celebrating with signs. I, I just don't think that's, I don't think Jesus would have been out holding signs up. You know, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Here's how I'm asking us to consider to um, it, to respond during this time. First of all, with brokenness, humility. I mean, the humility and the brokenness is that there are a lot of babies that, that aren't here today. And the humility is, is it's only by the grace of God that it's not me. Only by the grace of God that, that I didn't have to make a choice, you know. Um, and, and everybody says if, if men got pregnant, this would have never happened, and they're probably true, because men are wimps. <laughs> we couldn't handle pregnancy. That was kind of funny, and no one laughed at that joke. I, you know, I'm just, gosh, I'm, a, <laughs> um, I'm asking that we as, as church, as the church and believers, that we'd walk in a humility. Uh, it, it's not a, see, I'm right. I, th- here's what I'm worried about. Too many Christians are more worried about being right than the fact that the people that they're, that they're, that they're engaging don't know Jesus and are dying. You're more worried about being right than you are about someone's life. And that's unacceptable in the gospel. It just is. Number two, I'm asking that we pray. We continue to pray for our nation. We continue to pray for our leaders. We continue to pray for uh, women that that have have walked through this, women that are walking through this. We continue to pray God's grace and his mercy. The third one is the do, and this is where we lose most of the church. And the do is this. Don't just talk about something and not get involved and find a way to make a difference. I don't, if that means that you're donating to, to uh, help uh, young women who got pregnant, that means if you're bringing them into your house, you're giving them options other than abortion, don't just say, don't do abortion, and then, and then just leave it all over here. No, 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 no. If, if you have a conviction in God's word that says that abortion is not correct, then do something about it, which means go and help these young women who are struggling that have gotten into this situation. Don't stand up there and, and preach something and not willing to get your hands dirty and to help others. That's how I believe that, that God's calling us to respond to this. Not with pride. With a humble heart. And a continually going after God and asking for his mercy and his grace for this nation. Amen? 
All right, I love it. Okay, we are we are in uh, this series called Thirty Seven, and, and just to give you a quick quick overview, Thirty Seven is a statistic. Thirty Seven percent, Barna just did a study. Thirty Seven percent of pastors in America today, only Thirty Seven percent, live a true biblical worldview. Thirty-seven percent of the men that are standing in pulpits live a biblical worldview. What does that mean? They actually live by what this Bible says. Now you think about it, it's a little crazy. If you're up here preaching the gospel of Jesus out of this Bible, you should probably be in line with what this word says. Wouldn't you think that would be logical? Not so, not the case. And we're seeing that today, and I think it's one of the reasons that we've seen some of the issues that we see in the church and in America. During this series, what I'm also doing is, is fielding questions, which is, is, is very dangerous, because I know some of you, I've yet to get a smart out of question. I know it's coming, but I haven't got it yet. But any time during the service you have a question about something that I said, or you like to talk about it afterwards, I take about five minutes at the end of the service. That's the text number. It'll stay on some of the other slides. So if you have a question during the service, text it to us, and, and we'll get it. And uh, no, don't, none of the stump the pastor ones, you guys. Come on. We know that. Um, okay. The Christian world, we're talking about biblical worldview. That's what this series 37 is about. And a Christian worldview is this, that God is at the center of the world, at the center of everything, at the center of our lives, at the center of the universe, that God is solely is central in this universe. A secular worldview says that you're in the center of the universe. A secular worldview says that you have control of your life. It says that you understand, that you have infinite knowledge, that you actually are controlling this thing. Those are the two worldviews. Syncretism is something we talked about two weeks ago. Syncretism is what we see when you don't see the 37% of pastors live in a biblical worldview. What you find is the rest of them, someone do the math, 63, is that right? Can I count? 63% uh, lean into this, syncretism, which is taking, taking uh, philosophies from all religions and, and putting them together in a hodgepodge and, and pretty much making up your own religion. That's syncretism. A biblical worldview in the Bible is this. We as Christians believe the Bible is the one truth. While the popular stance in the world today is that there cannot be truth. That's what you'll hear in the world. There is no absolute truth. Over and over again, people say there's no absolute truth. Truth is whatever you think truth is. That is not true. There cannot be a truth because all are equal. It's important to understand uh, what it is we believe. That's why I'm teaching on this series. The Word of God is the foundation of, biblical, of a biblical worldview. This Word is the foundation of a biblical worldview. God's Word. I want to I break that down a little bit to you today. But first of all, let me, let me get, I want to give you a little example, a little of what that looks like, because I think illustrations are good for the least common denominator, which is me. I need pictures in my books. That's what I'm saying. Come on. I need lots of colored pictures. Okay. So what, what, is, what is truth? God is truth. God is Truth isn't what God does, it's who He is, okay? It's who He is. He is truth. There's no untruth in the Bible. So, what I've, I've done here is truth, this word, the word that we read and that we believe, is tethered to, and it goes up into heaven, and it's tethered to the Lord, okay? So this is, is what truth looks like. It is it is. It is here to this Bible. What we read, where we get our biblical worldview is right here in this Bible. Now, what we realize is this. The less of a biblical world, the less truthful biblical worldview you have, so God is at the top, right? The truth comes down into his word. But if you don't have strong truth of who God is, then something happens. At the very top, there's a little gap. So between truth and, 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 God, and what you believe about God, there's this gap. But here's what, what's interesting about this gap. This gap doesn't stay uh, just parallel all the way through. What you'll find with those who start to wane from biblical truth or wane from truth is that truth will eventually look more like this. 
And what started off as a small truth that you're like, well, maybe that's not true, what you'll find is eventually will be this great chasm between God, the truth in his word, and what you really believe. It's a slippery slope. Hence the fact that 37%, just 37% of pastors in a church live a true biblical worldview. How can that be? It starts right here. It starts right here. Week one, we talked about purpose and calling of life. Week two, last week, we talked about fathers and family and having a biblical worldview around fathers and a family. If you want to listen to those, you can go back to the website. They're on the website, and you can, you can check it at, uh, at pacificpointchurch.com or Facebook. This week, I want to talk about what does a biblical worldview look like around God, creation, and history? What does that look like? Now, I, I want you to take this image. I'm going to leave it up the whole time, and I, I want you to think about your thoughts of what truth is. I want you to take some of your thoughts in your mind about who God is, creation, what it looks like, what the history of the Bible looks like, and, and I want you to go, is it this truth that's tied to this word that goes straight to God? The two are in, interchangeable. They are, they are the same. It's linear. God and the Bible, truth. Or are there some areas in your theology that are detached from this word of God and are starting to slide this way a little bit? And just kind of look at your life and examine as we go through these this morning. Number one, the first thing I'm going to look at is, is on God. Who's God? Now, a biblical worldview about who God is, I found these statistics were encouraging. Those who do believe in a biblical worldview that believe in this, 99 plus percent of them, the Bible is accurate and reliable, reliable word of God. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect, and just creator of the universe. 99% believe that. 99-plus percent believe God has uniquely called them, that you have a unique calling in life. 99-plus percent say that they intentionally try to avoid sinning because they know it hurts God. These are men and women who hold a biblical worldview. 96% claim that every moral choice either honors or dishonors God. And 88% believe God has a reason for everything. I'd like to see that one go up a little bit. <laughs> but th this is people with a biblical worldview on God. Now, the most frequent quest, uh, asked question about God in the Bible concerns who he is, his identity. Who is God? The Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. You don't see this Bible just, you got to believe in God, trying to prove this existence. It assumes, assumes his existence, and then from that point, we go into creation and life. It already assumes that he is true. We see this because in Genesis 1.1 it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the Alpha and the Omega. And when I say God, I'm talking about Trinitarian theology. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Playing deference to one another. In the beginning, and we see this, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were there in creation. And what the Bible does is reveal God's nature and character and the work of God. It shows who he is. It shows what he does, what the Holy Spirit does, their roles and, and who they are. That's who God is. A good summary of definition of God is this. He is other than. Yeah, a better one is um, he is God and you're not. Because here's the scary thing. Some of you start to think that you are God. Now, that, that sounds like a, a bold statement. I don't ever think I'm God. Look, we all have pride and make decisions. Every time that you sin, every time that I choose to sin, what we're saying is this. God, the truth of your word that says don't do that, you don't know what you're talking about, I do, and I'm going to sin. Each time that I step outside of the truth of God's word is me playing God. I know better than you. Summary of who God is, he's other than. He's omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He is not us. We are created, fallen, fallible beings, restored by him. He is other than. Now, when, when we look at this, let's, let's take some of these, and let me show you why it's so important to have a great biblical foundation, a biblical worldview. Because it says this in Psalms 100, verse 5, God is good. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, that is the truth. God is good. 
It's linear. It's not what he does. He doesn't do good things. It is who he is. He is good. Now, what happens is things get in our head. We watch social uh, TV and social media, and we read things, and we start to go, well, this guy, this author said that God isn't good because look at all the destruction. Look at the wars that are going on today. And then all of a sudden you go, yeah, 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 that makes sense. If God was good, why would this happen? And all of a sudden the truth of the Bible that says God is good starts to wane a little bit. And you go, maybe he's not so good. And then you, got, you, know, you go and you're having a decent week and all of a sudden you get in a car accident. You total your car, but you're all right. And you go... How is God good? Why wouldn't he protect me from that? Maybe he's not the good God that he talks about in the Bible. Then all of a sudden, you start to weigh in a little bit more. See, what happens is separation of truth, God is good, that I stand and I know because that's what Scripture says of who he is, is it starts to go down this road and go, you know, maybe God isn't so good. Maybe he really doesn't care. Maybe God is really out to get me. Maybe he's not the one that they say he is. And there's this tension that is now formed. And all of a sudden, this, this faith that you've walked in, this, this truth of this word that you've stood on, this Bible, becomes a little more gray. And sometimes even less gray and completely out the window. You know, God is just... Here's the issue right now. So God is just, but someone is thinking in their head, wait, how could God be just? If God was just, when I was 13, that person wouldn't have done that to me. If God is just, how did God allow that businessman to screw me over and take all my money in my business? If God is just, how did he allow my husband or my wife to cheat on me and, and break up my marriage? If God is just, how does this really happen? All of a sudden, the word says that God is just. It is true. It's not what he does. Remember, it's who he is. God is just. All of a sudden, you start taking your life circumstances and start unraveling. And you get down over here. And all of a sudden, you're so far away from the truth because of your circumstances in life. See, the, the truth is, if you understand this word of God's justice, it's this, that no one gets away with anything. That, that the Bible says clearly in Hebrews that it is appointed for every man to die and then stand before God. Each one of us are going to die. We know that, true? And we will stand before God. And the one that you think is getting away with something, you go, oh, God isn't just because he wouldn't allow that guy that hurt me or that girl that hurt me to get away with it. All of a sudden, the one that you thought there was getting away with it is going to stand before God. And God in his justice and God in his mercy is going to judge. I don't want to stand before the judgment of God and give an account for my sin. That's the beauty of grace. So, so this, this justice thing starts to unravel in people's minds because of the hurt that they're walking through. And they don't trust that God is just. God is gracious. How could God be gracious when, when, when kids are dying, starving? How could God be gracious when, the, when in, in, in Crimea and, and throughout the world there's all these things? How could God truly be gracious? The Bible says in Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in his loving kindness. But I don't see it, God. Now all of a sudden in my mind, you start unraveling truth and going, I don't, I don't believe in this gracious God because I see all of this. The reality is this. It's only because of God's grace and mercy that this place is in complete chaos. If, if, if God is good, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's kind, he's all the attributes that this word says that he is. If that is true, if it is true, let's remove that from this world. What are we left with? Anger. <laughs> Lust. Perversion. Hatred. Murder. All those things are left. It's only because God's sovereign hand is in this world that it's not complete chaos. It's only because God is here that it's not a complete mess. God is gracious. And, and here's where I have to submit myself. The Bible says, Psalm, that's only one of, of a number I could have pulled up on, says that God is gracious. Here, here's where I have to submit myself. Here's the faith walk of Christianity. This word says it because God said it. 
I'm just going to have to trust. Even though I don't feel it, God, sometimes I don't see it. I, I can't taste it. I, I, I'm not experiencing your grace right now the way that I think I should. I'm going to trust that it's true. See, there, there is this faith component to this thing called faith. This relationship that we have with God. And it's this, that if the Bible speaks of God's goodness, I stand on it, even though I may not be experiencing it at this moment. Now, the reality is the reason you're not experiencing His goodness at this moment is not because He's not good. It's because of the depravity of man. Because there's brokenness in this world. Because man is flawed and jacked up. And maybe, just maybe, because some of the decisions you've made have put you in this place. Now, that's the one we don't like, to take accountability. God's not gracious. You know, you know I don't know how many times I've, I've done marriage counseling with, uh, you know, uh, different couples and, and, you know, God's not gracious. She's not this. He's not this. I'm like, you're both idiots. It's nothing about God's grace. It's about you being a selfish idiot. That's, you know, uh, that was, actually, that was me last week at our wonderful anniversary. Gosh, I'm not going to repent because I'm not allowed to repent from here. We've agreed to that. But I, I, I had a couple, some moments of less than gracious, kind, 26-year-old years with this beautiful woman. I know it's hard to believe that you could be mean to her, but she's mean as a snake. Um, <laughs> she's wonderful. She's wonderful. God is gracious. I stand on the truth of this word that God is gracious even when I don't feel it. Let's, okay, let's get vulnerable and real here. I don't wake up every moment and, and with this, I'm so in love with her. And we've had this conversation. I talk about it in my marriage. I don't just, you know, let's flip it. She doesn't wake up each morning with the hair that I have that's sticking all different ways and the odors and all that stuff and look, oh, I'm so in love with him. The emotions aren't there 24-7. But it's this choice that she makes, that I make, to go, I choose to love her because of I know who she is. And in, in, in this relationship with God, there's times that I don't feel God's grace in my life, but I choose to love him, and I choose to believe that that is true. I choose not to go over here and allow this gap to grow in who God is and who I think he is or what I'm experiencing. I choose to go, no, 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 no. This is what his word says, and I know I can be deceived, and I know I'm broken, and I know I'm fallen, but I'm going to trust what the word of God says, and I'm going to stand on it. And you know what happens? God becomes gracious. It doesn't become, God already is. God shows himself graciously in my life. Just out of nowhere, and I go, whoa, okay, okay. See, here's the problem when we get outside of the truth. The further and further away we get from the truth of that word, and I said it earlier, it, it, we look more and more like God's. We look more and more like we're the ones who think we're in control of this thing. I know he doesn't know. I understand you don't understand. It's not true. See, a biblical worldview that rises out of Scripture, coming from the Father, puts me in this place of humility of going, okay, I don't have it all together. And I've got to allow God in me, Jesus in me, to change me. Because I, I can't do this. If God is God, then you're not. That sounds pretty logical, right? If God is God, then you're not God. Now, I, I, one of my favorite verses in all scripture or, or chapters is Job 38. says this. Now, Job has been struggling with God. He's been wrestling with God, and he's lost everything that he has. And, and God goes, Here, here's what's interesting about God, the God that we serve. He's not moved as Chris prayed early. He doesn't come off the throne when, when, when you have a bad day or when, when you question him about something. But I know this about God in the same way that I know this as a father, that my kids can kind of pester and, and say and whine a little bit, and I give a little bit of room. And then there comes a time I go, enough's enough. I'm done. That's what's going on right here with Job. I love this. He says this. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? We could, you know, we could, we could take it and say, who, who are you, idiot? He's, God's nicer than me. 
He's, this is the part like, brace yourself like a man. He calls him out. He's like, be a man. Brace yourself. I will question you, and why don't you answer me now? This is where I get, when, when everything gets out of whack, when I get out of whack here and I start it, this is where I go. Because it, it, this is what he says next. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the seas behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thickness in thick darkness. When I fixed limits or... Uh, I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. He says, where were you? You weren't nowhere around. You made none of those choices. He sets us in place and goes, you are created, finite, fallen people. And, and I love that he gives me a little attitude, but I also love the fact that he says, enough's enough. I am God and you're not. That's what he's saying to Job. I understand you don't. I see from beginning to end, you don't. So whenever I get a little squirrely and, and start to go, where's God's grace? Where's God's mercy? Where's his peace? Uh, and I get in this place between these two places, I go back to Job 30 and go, okay, God, I'm going to trust you because I don't get it. I'm going to trust you because it doesn't make sense. But your word says you're gracious. Your word says you're merciful. Your word says that you're kind. I'm standing on that. Because let me tell you what the world tells me. It's fleeting. It's quicksand. Job 38 is this. At some point, you're going to have to take that step of faith. And trust that God is God. Why is the biblical worldview on God important? Because we need to trust who he is. We need to be able to trust that he is who he says he is. Out of the Bible rises truth, and that truth is connected to God. From God comes truth, and it's written in this word. And I stand on this against what I see, what I hear, what I smell, and what I taste. Now, I don't always do that. I am not, I, I, that's too many times I'm walking this way, and I go, nope, Job 38, got to regroup, regroup. Or going this way, get a little slap in the back of the head. Nope, 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 right here. But that's the truth I want to live my life on. Number two, creation. Having a biblical worldview around creation is critical. The Christian worldview tells us in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the basis for the whole story. This is the basis for everything that happens and where it begins in this word. It is the beginning. God created. God created. It says this, and the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let the water swarm and, 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 uh, with uh, swarms of living creatures and birds flying above the earth across the expanse of the heaven. God spoke, let there be light, let there be, let there be. Out of his word, the, 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 the word that is used is ex nihilo, which means he is the only one who can create from nothing. We can create because God made us in his image, but we can't create out of nothing. We create out of something that we already have. God said, let there be light. There was no light, and there was light. Big difference. God created. He said this of us, and the Lord God formed man from the formed man of the dust and the ground and breathed into his nostrils and breathed, breathed life. And the man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward of Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. God created us. Look, this, this whole controversy that's going on right now, this whole difficulty, this whole, the, the Roe v. Wade, everything that, that is, is, is based right here. This is, is why we hold on and value life, because we're created in the image of God. We're created like him. He is the maker of heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. He remains faithful and forever. Psalm 146. God created man. This is it. God created man in his image. I know that's kind of scary because if you look in the mirror, you go, that's God? Come on. Come on, people. Stay with me. <laughs> what? Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. 
God created man in his own image, male and female, and created them. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. He gives this directive to go and be fruitful and multiply, uh, multiply just as he multiplied. But he spoke it. He gave us an ability to be fruitful. That is a blessing. But God just spoke it into existence. Creation points to a creator. Creation points directly to a creator. Everything you see has purpose. This is an interesting... And, and, and a very important uh, uh, understanding is just this. There is nothing in this building that we see right now, not a single thing that doesn't point to a creator that had purpose. To find something. This TV, someone in their mind created it with the purpose of you and I being able to see the screen. Those chairs, someone in their mind engineered it so that you could sit your behind in that chair. This wall wasn't there. We created this uniquely. It is a, it's a, a rack that you'd see at Home Depot, and we're like, hey, there's a purpose here. Let's get a rack, and we'll skin it with some wood, and you'll think it's a wall, and we'll save a lot of money. <laughs> there's, pur- there's a purpose why I did this. It's an illustration so you could see. There's nothing that you can show me of someone's life. There's purpose in your life. God created you with purpose and destiny. There's nothing that we see that doesn't speak to a creator and purpose. Therefore, why would we say that life speaks to a creator and purpose, but when it comes to us, there is no creator and there's no purpose? It's absurd. The, 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 the truths aren't congruent. It makes no sense. Yet we say, oh, we evolved or whatever we did. Creation points to a creator. And if it says we're 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 created in the image of God and the mind of God and, and, and how he functions is we can see in people. Why is the biblical worldview on creation so important? Because of purpose and order. Purpose and order. The truth of the word of God speaks to creation. Let there be, as Jesus, as God said, let there be. But, but, but he, here's what happens the world would try to sell you on something called Darwinism. Here's the problem. The Word of God speaks this. Why is creationism so important to have as a worldview and a strong worldview? Is because the Bible says that before the foundations of the earth, God knew you. He had purpose for you. He created you uniquely and specially. You. There's some six, seven billion people in the world today. Each one created uniquely by God. Darwinism? would tell you this. It's random. Just, just, boom. There's an explosion and you came to be. People came to be. What happens with that worldview is that there's no purpose. You can do whatever you want. Who cares? Who cares? If, if, If Darwinism is true, who cares what you do, when you do it, and why you do it? It doesn't matter. There's no moral restraint. There's no truth. There's no God's word to tell you right and wrong to stand on, to believe in. You might as well do whatever the heck you want. See, that's a secular worldview that they're selling. Look, what's truth to you isn't truth to me. What you say is truth is not truth to me. And the Bible says, no, 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 you don't get it. There is a truth. There is one truth. It comes from the Father, God, and goes down into his word and comes out through us as we renew our minds and we read his word so that we can be light in the midst of darkness. Number three, the last one, history. History is so important. I love this quote that I read this week. Only this one story unlocks the meaning of human history. Speaking of the Bible, speaking of the Bible, from the Torah all the way through the Gospels, only this one story unlocks the meaning of human history, and thus the meaning of life, your life and mine. See, there's no randomness in this room. God created with purpose and destiny. It's unlocking that. How do you unlock it? Through his word. It unlocks who you are. Look, how do you unlock purpose? When you wrestle with identity, when you wrestle with who you are, when you wrestle with insecurities, those things are are changed. They change me when I read his word and he renews and I see who God created me to be. And I see the intimacy in which God loves me. I see all these things. It changes me. 
This book unlocks the meaning to life for you and me. So how do historians find truth in history? There's, there's four basic ways. Archaeological evidence, manuscript evidence, literary consistency, and eyewitnesses. Those are what they use to, to really define if something really happened historically. So my question to you would be this. How do we know the Civil War was true? Was anybody around other than Jim and Shirley during the Civil War? <laughs> ah, that's a cheap mom-dad joke. But she, they're, when they're, they're like softballs, though. You've got to hit them out. Does anybody know, how do you know that the, the Civil War is true? This is the test. You have archaeological evidence, historically, that we can show and, and see. You have manuscript evidence. What does that mean? People wrote down what was happening during the war. They're writing this stuff down. Three, you have literary consistency. What you see there is you have one writer here that's writing an account of what happened in the north, and you have one writer here that's writing an account of what happened in the south, and the two come together, and there's a consistency. It's congruent. There are eyewitnesses. There were thousands and hundreds of thousands of eyewitnesses that saw what happened in this civil war. So they're able to orally and physically write down what went on. This is how historians know that it is true. So let's talk a little bit about the history of this word. Because the question is, how can I trust this word to be true in my life? Look, the reality is this. It's either true or it's not. If there's something that's not true in this word, throw it out. Throw it out. It's either true through and through from Genesis to Revelation or it's not. So when we look at the archaeological history of the word, Rabbi Nielsen said this, he declared no archaeological discovery has ever converted um, a biblical reference. Since then, the evidence has been kept coming. It, basically what happens is, is as, as we grow historically and, and, and technically in what we're doing in life, this, we're starting to see these digs and we're starting to see this, this revelation of who God is because of the advancement of mankind. Uh, here's a couple of things that we see. In 1961, an inscription was found bearing the name of Pilate, proving where Jesus was in Pilate. In 68, first century, in Capernaum, an uh, identity as, uh, uh, as that of the Apostle Peter. In 1990, they found uh, an inscription and, and, and bones of Caiaphas, the high priest who infamously pushed for Jesus' execution. In 93, this house of David and the discovery of, of, of this king, and, and it, it, we're starting to see discovery after discovery. Now, this is the one that blew my mind, because um, this, this is a guy from Newsweek, completely secular magazine, want nothing to do with Christianity. Says they detail perhaps the most astonishing of all such finds appeared in a lengthy peer-reviewed. What does that mean? You're not just saying it. You have a peer of archaeologists and, and historians that are going over and, and confirming that it is true. Peer-reviewed paper of Nature Science Report, which is, has nothing to do with the Bible and, and completely secular. It described a, a catechismic destruction of the Middle Bronze Age city north of the Dead Seas that represented years of research and technology. Basically, they found this, this place that represented Sodom. That, that the facts, whoa, the facts of a biblical marriage view, oh, <laughs> uh, boy, where did we go? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, wait, Oop, there we go. Are we there? <laughs> the, the facts, this is some of the things they found the archaeologists, that stones fell from the sky, a fire came down from the sky, thick smoke rose from the fires. Archaeologists were able to, to verify this. A major uh, uh, city was devastated. City inhabitants were killed and area crops were destroyed. It even says that what happened may have generated an oral tradition because the source of the written story of the biblical of Sodom in, in, in Genesis that's some 5,000 years ago. And today, they're finding the archaeological evidence that would say that this book is true. It's real. 
history and manuscript evidence. The New Testament is, has been preserved through more manuscript evidence than any other work in humankind. Over 5,800 complete complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts, cataloged 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 manuscripts in various other ancient languages, all streaming to and from this word of God, consistently, coherent. The next closest is Homer, Homer's Iliad, which has right around 1,000. Historically, we say no problem. Yes, that was true, Homer's Iliad and, and his Odyssey. But here's the difference between Homer's Iliad and, and, and Homer's Odyssey. The difference is this. No one's praying to Homer. No one's placing their lives around the Odyssey or the Iliad. Yet today, people are placing their lives at the feet of Jesus because of this word. Because of the, we have more manuscript evidence for that Bible than of any historical teaching in that era that we've seen. Literary consistency. The Bible's teaching, if perfect, must be consistent with one another. And that the Bible is consistent within itself from beginning to end. There's no contradictions. Now, people always say to me, I can't read that Bible because there's so many contradictions. And my next line is this. Give me one. Rarely have I found someone who can articulate an inconsistency, and when they can, it can usually be it can be uh, refuted through the Scripture and the Word. It, 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 can you imagine this? Look, look at this. This is crazy. The book, the Bible, was written at different times by different authors over a period of approximately fifteen hundred years. Fifteen hundred years to write the Scriptures, written by approximately forty men in diverse backgrounds over a course of 1,500 years. I can't even get a congruent letter to my son who's at boot camp with my wife. I can't, I can't get messages in my household to be congruent, let alone 40 different men writing over 1,500 years and the, the, the precise precision of this word and the consistency of this word, and there's, there's no, it, it, it blows my mind. How does that happen? Spirit of God. The Bible was written by all these men over all this time, and it is, it is a, a, a literary genius of a, a writing. Ultimately, above all human authors, the Bible is written by God. All scripture is breathed by God. Look, this wasn't written by man. It was, it was written by God through the hands and the minds of men and women. All scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. This word is, 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 is value in my life because it brings teaching. It brings reproof of who I am. It brings correction in my life, which I need. It brings training to be a better husband. It brings, brings training. The truth of his word brings training to be a better dad, to be a better friend, to be a better pastor. All these things. When I stand under God's authority and stand on his word and I know his word, I don't drift to this place of going, well, maybe, hey, maybe, maybe. I go, no, 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 this is truth. And sometimes I don't feel like it's truth. And sometimes I don't even, I don't experience. But, but I, I trust this word because I don't trust me. Because I don't trust you. You know why? Because I don't trust human nature. One of my kids the other day said, why don't, don't you trust me? No, I don't trust you. Sorry, I don't trust you. You know why? Because I know human nature. And I don't trust my own human nature apart from God. I don't trust my own soul apart from Jesus. Why would I trust you, kid? <laughs> All right. Last one, eyewitnesses. Eyewitness, 1 Corinthians 15, says this, For I delivered to you as first importance what I have also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried and he raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture, and that he appeared to Caiaphas and the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom were still alive, though some having fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. Last of all, this is Paul speaking, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We have eyewitnesses. Look, Muslims, yes, Jesus is real. Buddhists, yes, Jesus is real. You go to all the other religions, Jesus is real. They just don't count him as their savior. But they don't, they don't argue the fact that he was real. 
So why is biblical worldview in history so important? Because the truth that God gives us through this word is what I stand on. As opposed to revisionist history. As opposed to people would tell me, that word's not true. There's too many contradictions. I go, give me one. That word can't be true. That word isn't true because this happened over here. And I don't care what this or that was. I know that the, the time tested 5,000 years of the truth of God's word. And here's what you can't argue with. A life changed. What I know that I know about this, this word is that it changed my life. That it changed so many of your lives. How do you argue with the fact that the word is alive and active and, and changed your life? How do you say, oh, I, you know, that isn't true. No, it changed me. I have to live in this place of trusting that word. Some of us today, we don't trust this word. You know why? Because you're listening and watching other things. And all of a sudden it seems in your mind to be more compassionate to not believe what that says. And in our minds we go, well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't be that harsh. How could God, how could God deal with people that way? I don't know, I'm not God. I don't like the fact that babies die. I don't like the fact that war is going forth. I don't like the fact that, that people have been molested and raped and beaten and I, I hate all of that and it breaks your heart. But that doesn't mean God isn't just. What it means is man's depravity is running throughout this world. But if it's true, and I believe it's true, God's justice will prevail. And we will stand before God and give an account. That's why my relationship with him is so important. That's why when, when I speak of God's grace, I'm overwhelmed that God the Father in his book would speak of his grace, and his grace would say that, that he wipes away my sins in Isaiah and, forget, and, and, and literally remembers them no more. That word says to me that, that although I deserve hell, God gives me life. What that word says to me is that when I come into this relationship with Jesus and I give my heart to the Father, what he says is that you have everlasting life. I stand on that word and I believe and I trust and I'm not always good at it but I always come back and it's usually when I get slapped in the face with Job 38 were you there when I created the heavens and earth nope okay okay God I'm going to trust you I'm going to trust you I'm going to trust you because of who you are a biblical worldview is tethered to the Bible. Truth rises out of the scripture. It starts with God and then it was put into this book and then, then it rises out of this scripture into our hearts and it changes us when you read it, when you renew your mind, when you engage the Father. This is what's critical. Renewing your mind with the washing of God's word which is truth, which is truth. How do, how do I do that? Ah, you guys ever seen this? Word, pray, worship, and day. What does that mean? How do I renew my mind? How do I stay on the truth of God's word and not get south? I read his word daily. I journal. I have conversations with God through prayer and with Jesus. I worship through music and words. Each and every day. Have I missed some days? Absolutely. But I go back to, and you know what I find when I miss some days? I start to go here. The enemy grabs a hold of me and they go, no, 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 okay, back. Here's the word of God. Stand on the word of God. Here's truth. Stand on his truth and trust him. And trust him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you for your word and truth. God, I thank you that Grace is not what you give, it's who you are. I thank you that truth is not what you speak, it's who you are. God, I thank you that you loved us even when we didn't love you. 
Lord, I pray that as we walk in this biblical worldview and in, in these areas, God, that we would be, we would bring compassion and love to others. We would bring the light so that you would be glorified, so that others might have hope. God, I thank you in your precious name. Amen. Amen. We're going to do some questions, I think, if you guys had some today. Uh, Seth, I'll let you take, take Okay. If God created everything in seven days, how is it possible that carbon dating shows the earth is a billion, billions of years? This is a, a, an argument that, I mean, that is, is that I think foolishness for Christians. It's old earth, new earth argument. You know, and, and God created in the literal seven days. If God is God, happen to believe he is. Um, his time is not our time. Now, do I believe it's a literal seven years or days? Yeah, I think it is. I, personally, that's my conviction. I'm not going to die on that hill. But I believe it was a literal seven days. I think when we look at carbon data, I think the, the earth's been around for a billion years. I think the earth's been around for a heck of a lot of time. You know, what did I say? Science is continually trudging up the hill of there's no God, there's no God, only to come on the other side, and someone said this, and I'm butchering it, but only to come on the other side of the truth that there is a God and there's an explanation. So how is it possible that carbon dating shows the earth a billion? Because the earth's probably a billion years old. Now, there's some, some that, that are new earthers that say, oh, no, it's only, you know, 10,000 or whatever. That's fine. I don't care. I'm not going to die over that. Don't get stuck in that. Don't put your flag in the ground and say, oh, the earth. You don't know. I don't know. I can barely figure out what, what time I'm supposed to be here on Sunday mornings, let alone how many billions of years the earth is. You're also putting your, there's a point, carbon dating. What does that look like? So there's all kinds of factors. I, I, all I, here's what I know, that God created. That God created. And here's what I know. There was a beginning before creation, and there'll be time even through creation. I don't know what time looked like before creation. God is infinite. All right. Next question. Because um, I, I love the way, the, the poetic beauty of the way God brings Job back into alignment. So Job had everything, as we know. God, the, the devil came to, to, to God and said, they only love you. Job only loves you because he has everything that he could want. Who wouldn't love you? You know, you're blessed. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm obviously, you know, uh, paraphrasing. God says, no, no, no. He loves me because he loves me. And then the enemy, he said, you can take everything from him except for his life. And then God started to, to strip him of everything. So much so, he, his friends are mocking. And, and then Job gets, you know, a little anxious and what the heck and all this stuff. And it, not unlike me or you guys, where you're just like, this God, why would you, God, you know? But I love God, the, the fact that God goes, enough's enough. Let me tell you how. Were you there when I created the earth? Then sit down and shut up. That's what I do to my kids. I give them a long rope to, to ask questions and be smart, Alex. But then there comes a point I go, sit down. I created you. I brought you into this world. I should be able to take you out, but I brought you into this world. Uh, you know, and, and listen, let me tell you how life is. So for me, when I get out of line, I love that. I just go, oh, you know what? My pride starts to fall. I get away from being, I know what's going on. And all of a sudden I go, okay, God, you know I don't. So that scripture is just foundational for me. Seth, do you got any more? What is a biblical view of healthy masculinity? Gosh, you guys give me the easy ones today. Um, a healthy view of masculinity. The healthiest view of masculinity is knowing who you are and who your father and who your father is. Everything that a young man, because we're talking about men right now, needs to know or needs to, 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 to be the man that, that God's called him to be has to start with a father. 
Now, we did statistically, we showed last week, one of the problems in America is about a third of our kids live with a father in the house. So if you remove the father from a, 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 a nuclear family, it's, it's more difficult because one of the ways that your children or your, your boys learn to be a man is by looking at their father and imitating their father. Now, the downside of that is if you've got crappy fathers out there, you know. Um, but, but number one, this biblical uh, view of healthy masculinity starts with a father who loves God, who knows God, who is serving God. It starts right there. Outside of that, then it's, it's, it's when a, a young man gets saved and dives into this word and finds out who God meant them to be, who God created them to be, what their body parts are, who, you know, how he's called them to walk as men, as young men. The biblical worldview of healthy masculinity is a man who doesn't fight until he has to fight. A man who doesn't pick a fight. A man who avoids everything he can. But a healthy biblical man, masculinity, is this. You don't take away his, his reason and his, his ability to fight. You just teach him when's the appropriate time to fight. Because let me tell you, there are times to fight. Biblical healthy masculinity is teaching a man when that time is and when it's not. Biblical, a healthy biblical masculinity is being secure even when someone says something about you that's not true. Biblical masculinity, see, if, if we impart these truths of securities that God gives through this word into our young men, they'll walk around and they won't be looking at a phone all day to try to figure out who they are and who they have to compare themselves to. Because they'll look in the mirror of the Bible, the Word of God, and they'll go, this is who God says I am. Not who that girl or that guy does. Okay. <sighs> you know, because he's not. Gosh. We all know that truth rises out of the scripture that speaks of Michael Jordan's greatness. LeBron's getting, he's all right, but, I mean, he's not going to ever win an NBA championship again, but he is a great player. What number is he? I know, I'm just giving him that. We got any more? That's it? All right. Well, let's, uh, that was, you guys were easy on me today. Thank you. Um, let's, let's stay in and, and, and we can come up and start um, with worship and we're going we're gonna to finish with communion. Um, communion is an important time for us. Communion is a time that we, we take who we are and we, we, we bring it to the feet of the Lord. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24, it says, on the night that Jesus betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and gave thanks he says, this is my body. It represents my body that was broken for you. And then they took, he, Jesus took the wine on that same night and, and they drank. And he said, this is, represents my blood that was spilled for you. And they drank. So before you receive today, I just examine your heart. I, I don't want to take it out of just because that's what we do, tradition. But before you receive the bread and then drink the wine on, or juice on your own, just examine your heart and maybe ask God, what are you speaking to me today? Is there anything that you need to ask forgiveness for? Is there anything you need to set your heart right before the Lord? Now's the time to do that. We do that as a family. Father, we thank you for this opportunity today to worship. Lord, to receive communion, to hear your word. God, I pray that, Lord, we would be a, a church of men and women who would walk the conviction of a biblical worldview. God, not that we are called to argue with anyone, but that we might love others well. Lord, that we may stand on the truth of this word. Let us, let us not 
venture out of the, the truth of your word and who you say you are and who you say we are. God, let us walk in conviction of this word. God, let us wash our minds from the world and all the crud that's out there and, and let it be renewed with the truth of who you are and what your son did for us some 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross for my sins that I might have everlasting life. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you, God. Let us live in such a way that the light of this word would shine through us into others' eyes that we might bring hope. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.